Satan's persecution of the church will prevent some people from buying and selling food. Fathers may not be able to provide for their families. Christians will be put to death. And it might even look like Christianity has been stamped out altogether. But John gives us in chapter 14 a passage that says, Don't ever give up. John gives us the passage so that they will never stop resisting Satan. John gives us the passage so that we will not be tempted to join the world in its idolatry and immorality. John gives us this passage to help us persevere to the end and be saved. Revelation chapter 14 verses 1 through 13 enables us to endure to the end by showing the salvation of the redeemed and the judgment of the wicked. There are three parts to it. And there are no handouts tonight, but that doesn't mean you, don't, you can't take notes. You can write it down somewhere. Three parts, alright? The first one is that God is going to assure His people they will be rescued. That's verses 1 through 5. We'll talk about that pretty quickly. The second one is God warns those who have rejected Him. And the last one is God reminds us that there is reward in perseverance. So God's going to assure us that He's going to rescue us. He's going to warn those who have turned their backs on Him. And He's going to remind us that perseverance leads to blessing. Now what I want you to think about with this passage of Scripture in particular is that it is um, on the downside of what has kind of been a focal point of a section. It's been a section from Revelation 7 through 16 as kind of a major section. Um, One of the things that I see when I visit people's homes, um, especially people that have children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren, is that pictures play a prominent role in their home. And they usually have a meaning to the way they're arranged. So sometimes it's by birth order, the children and grandchildren. Sometimes you gather the grandchildren of one child with them and put them in birth order. Sometimes it's like a pyramid or you know you, you try to do something to show. Well, in the last few chapters of, that we've been studying and the next few that we will, it's like it's been a, um, a centerpiece picture and then everything else comes from it. Alright, and so... At the center of it, you have Christ is King. That's the center mantelpiece of this whole section, and you find that in 11, 15 through 19. Okay? And so, it is what everything else revolves around. Now, what's interesting is you have these escalating pictures on the side that go up and then back down that are parallel and remind us of the fact that Christ is King. The first thing we have in Revelation chapter 7 is the 144,000 are sealed and then we have the seven trumpets. You remember that? 144,000 sealed and then the judgment comes. That's Revelation 7 and then 8 and 9. Okay? So after that, we see in chapter 10 that God has a true prophet, who is John. Okay? And that's chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. And that in the midst of all this is the persecution of the church, which is chapter 11, 1 through 14. All right? So we build towards Christ being king. Well, then the section comes back down from that. And what we have 
following chapter 11 and chapter 12 is another description of the persecution of the church, which comes in chapter 12, 1 through 13, 10. Then you have Satan's false prophet, which is 13, 11 through 18. Now look at let's look at it. Chapter 14 where we're going to be tonight. What's the first thing you see there? Now look and we saw the lamb and who's with the lamb? 144,000. That's chapter 14. What's chapter 15 and 16? Anybody want to look ahead? Seven bowls. Plagues. Chapter 15 and 16. So I'm not one that likes to force this kind of stuff, but when you look at it like this, you see it's pretty, it's not too forced. Okay? So here's what that means for our discussion tonight. Whatever the 144,000 is here, guess what? That's what it is here. Okay? So this is one of those things we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've already discussed this. And you all remember that discussion so clearly and have such good recollection of it that we'll just hit it briefly tonight, okay? Um, but, but you see that, that whatever's here is here. And another important factor, and this is what we're going to talk about for just a minute. If the 144,000 is here, the seven trumpets of plagues come, the persecution of the church happens, another persecution of the church, Satan's false prophet comes, how many do we still have over here? So how many did we lose? We didn't lose any. So what does that mean? That if you're here, you're here. The point is, God will save and protect His people. Okay. Now again, we've talked about this, and we're going to talk about it more tonight. It's harder for us to get a grasp of how powerful that message is because we're not in the shoes of generations and centuries of Christians that worried if their next breath would be their last. And when you hear that, to know that it doesn't matter what happens to your body, that God's going to take care of you is of immense comfort. Chapter 14, verse 1. But then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from the heaven like the roar of washing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new psalm before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one who could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those that did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among the men and offered as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. No lie was fouled in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, And he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed him and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength in the cup of his wrath. 
who had been tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who call, receives the mark of the name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, said the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Three sections that we're going to talk about tonight in a brief way. There's no way we can do full justice to this whole passage, but we want to uh, look at three important points from this. And the first thing is, God's people can be assured of rescue. Now, remember again that John is writing to churches that are struggling. We saw that in the letters to the seven churches. And John has told these churches in chapter 13 that Satan is going to make war on them by using deceptive signs to initiate persecution. Now John tells the embattled Christians in the audience that Satan will not have the last word. John gives assurance to the redeemed in chapters 14, 1 through 5, warns the wicked in the following verses, and then lets us see what's going to happen. There are matching sets uh, in this whole thing of what we see John doing and what God intends for us to do. Uh, John tells us what he sees in verse 1. He tells us what he hears in verse 2, what the 144,000 were doing in verse 3, and what they were like in verses 4 and 5. Everything in these first five verses, in the depiction of what's happening, is there to motivate endurance. It's there to those who have embattled to behold those who have overcome. It is there for them to see what happens for people who remain faithful and the promises that will be received. They see the conqueror on Mount Zion with his army ready to wage war. They hear the song being sung. And all of that should inspire them and us to be faithful, to endure to the end, to overcome. Um, last fall, for the first time, I watched a show called The Biggest Loser. Anybody watch The Biggest Loser? Yeah, you know, you might know, you know what The Biggest Loser is about. It's people try to be the biggest loser and lose weight, right? Right, they lose weight. And uh, I watched it last year because a former Tennessee volunteer offensive lineman was one of the contestants, a guy named Anton Davis. And so I'd never seen the show before, so I, I knew what it was generally about, but I didn't know everything. All right. And so, as they start, they go to the, the place where they're going to work out, the gym. And they got all kinds of workout equipment in there. And they've got a trainer there whose sole job is to motivate them. Okay? Uh, you know, it, it's easier to lose weight when somebody else is fixing your meals, and they don't have any snacks available for you, and they're telling you how to exercise, alright? But on the walls were a picture of people I didn't recognize. But through the season a couple of times, the trainers would point to the people on the wall and apparently they were former contestants on The Biggest Loser and their pictures of them on the last day. Now, some people look at it and go, well, that is discouraging. You know, you see these thin people. But why are they up there? They're up there as motivation, right? This is what you could be like. This is what your goal is. Well, John is kind of doing the same thing here a couple of thousand years ago. This is what the goal is. This is what endurance brings you. This is what it will look like. And so the idea is that he wants them to keep going. All of that encourages them 
to stand faithful. What he wants them to realize more than anything is that Satan's reign is temporary. Satan's persecution is temporary. God's is forever. Now, even in the depiction he gives of the Lamb, it does that. In 14 verse 1, it says that the Lamb is standing where? On Mount Zion, okay? You can look back if you want to. Some of you may remember this. In chapter 12 verse 17, he talks about the a beast standing somewhere. Where is the beast standing? On the sand of the sea. Okay? So let me ask you. What's sturdier? The sand of the sea or the rocks of a mountain? Yeah, I'll take the rocks, right? Now, even if we didn't know that that might be there, didn't Jesus have one of His most famous parables was about the house built on the rock and the house built on the sand? Right? We just got back from the beach a couple of weeks ago, and this was Maddie's. Maddie had been to the beach before, but she doesn't remember it. She was like four months, and you know, her memory's not very good these days. She doesn't remember four months. But um, we got there, and we started to put her down in the sand. And uh, Phil actually had her. My father-in-law was there, and Phil had her. And he started to put her in the sand, and the closer she, he got her to the sand, the higher her legs came up. Like I'm not touching that. All right. When we finally got her to get down in the sand that she didn't know about, she put her hands down in it. And then she looked at him and she said, hands dirty, Dad, clean, clean. You know, like, get them cleaned off. Well, finally she got to the point where we wish she didn't like the sand so much. She's building sand castles. In fact, last night, we, she built sand castles for two or three days. Last night we were at Chili's and we were eating. And we look over and she said, look, Dad, castle. And she had built something out of French fries, which was pretty impressive for a two-year-old. But you have that debate, should I get on to her for playing with her food? That's pretty impressive, you know. But she wanted to venture out into the water. She got comfortable in the sand. She wanted to go to the water. So I take her out there. She doesn't want me to hold her. She wants to stand beside me and me hold her hand. Well, the wave's coming in. I want to make sure she doesn't get knocked over. And so I'm holding tightly. I don't even realize my own feet. And gradually my feet are getting deeper and deeper. Right? The sand is starting to fill back in in places. Because I'm just standing perfectly still trying to keep her there. It just reminded me again of how fragile sand is. The beast is on the sand. Jesus is on the rock. He's on Mount Zion. Even that little detail is to remind them that Satan does not have firm footing and Jesus has firm footing. We read in chapter 7 of the sealing of the 144,000. And now we see that group again in the rest of verse 1. Now, somebody tell me, what did we talk about the 144,000? Who did we say that could be? Well, they come, wasn't it 12,000 uh, 12, from each of the tribes of, of uh, Israel? Wait, that was one option we gave. Could be all the new saints that are saved during the trip. Could be that. Well, all the saints have to be men then. We'll talk about that in a minute, Carol. <laughs> we'll talk about that in a minute. Third was a representation of anyone that's. Yeah, yeah. And, and, yeah a representation of, of all of God's people of all time. Okay? Uh, am, not, I wrong, am I wrong? Did you say, when you did this back in those early chapters, you did not think it was possibly a literal 144,000 or am I wrong about that? Now, I said that what I, I said that I think it's a symbolic number, that it is a representation. 144,000 would have been completeness of complete, perfection of perfection. Yeah, and so I, I think it it can mean 
a I, my personal interpretation is that what it means in chapter seven is a representation of all of God's people of all time. Um, and so that they are representative of that. It doesn't mean that there are only 144,000 people saved for all time. It just means that that number, that, that representation is there. You missed something to them. You said it that time. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that's what I think it means. Well, just for my thing, if that's what I think it means here, then that's what it's got to mean here. Okay. Now, we'll get to in a minute, there are people that are saved out of this that you say, well, they're not part of the 144,000. I'm not saying that they represent everybody that ever will be. I'm just saying that when the end times is here, they serve as a representative in saying that number that of all of God's people of all time. Okay, And so, if that's the case, then what we have is Jesus standing with virtually a representation of all of His people ready to do war against Satan and his foes. Okay? And so it is a symbolic representation. I don't think this is a special group of them because what it's going to describe in them is it says these are the ones that did this. Well, if what that description is ought to be true of all people. It's not perfect Christians. It's just people that have been perfected by Christ. Okay? And so it says that there is 144,000. The idea there is that Jesus had promised in chapter 3, verse 12, that to the one that conquers, I will write on him the name of my God and my own new name. And here we see that those names are written. The ones that were sealed in chapter 7 have conquered and have received the promise God gave to them. The redeemed will stand with Jesus on Mount Zion. They will bear the name of the Father and the Son, showing forth His glory. The idea here is that there is something beyond this life for people who are believers in Jesus. In fact, these people are compared to Jesus. Remember in chapter 1, verse 15, it says that Jesus' voice sounded like the roar of many waters. What do the voices of these 144,000 sound like? The roar of many waters. And like the sound of loud thunder. The idea is that it describes a loud, overpowering voice. Okay, What you see here is um, you see something here that has become a literary and movie device today. Chapter 13 is one of the lowest moments in the lives of believers in the church. Satan is waging war and it's going to seem as if the church has been defeated and is silent and is done. It's going to be as if the church went out with a whimper. And in chapter 14, John in his vision sees that couldn't be farther from the truth. Because the church that was thought to go out with a whimper comes back with a voice like many rushing waters and the sound of powerful thunder. It is loud and boisterous and strong. Anything else in Scripture you can think of that happens like that? Goes out in a whimper, comes back in strength, goes out like a lamb led to slaughter, three days later, rises again in power. Right? 
It's this idea. Now, think about how many movies you've ever seen where the hero is at the lowest possible point. And you can't imagine any way. 0.8 seconds left on the clock. Down to the final bullet. The timer on the bomb is at 0.2 seconds. Right? Just when it seems it can't get any worse, it turns. Does anybody know what happened 20 years ago today? Any Kentucky fans in the room? Anybody ever heard of Christian Leitner? (laughs) Clock was down to zero when the ball went through. There was a book written about it this year. People, every year of the tournament, Kentucky fans get to see that last shot. Right? Every year. And if Louisville hits a last second shot this year, Kentucky fans are going to get to see it every year for the next 20. Why? Because we love that kind of story. Here's why I think our hearts love that kind of story. Because we know it's true to the story. That's how it was with Christ. I mean, how much more low can you get than dead? Right? I mean, how all these other things, the bomb almost goes off. The game almost ends. In the story of Christ, it ends. The bomb goes off. He's dead. And three days later, He comes back in full power. That's what's happening here in chapter 14. The church looks like it's gone, like it's defeated, like it's over. And then, with what sounds like rushing water and thousands upon thousands of harps. Now to us, we're like, harps? Really? I mean, trumpets, okay. Something, you know... Depending on your musical generation, you know, guitars or saxophone or piano, something besides them. None of us think, man, when I want a rocking good time, I go grab me a harp. But if you can imagine thousands of them played. Has anybody ever seen somebody play a harp with energy? It's an impressive thing. <laughs> no, only at weddings, Randy. In Wycliffe, they don't have an accomplished harpist, right? So you have this raucous crowd. Now, what are they doing? Praising the Lord, right? Singing what? A new song. So the songs we've always sung. A new song. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, one of the things that happens in Revelation, every new win deserves a new song. And they just join in and sing it with all their heart. The 144,000 have conquered. They're singing. They're bearing the voice of the Lord. One of my favorite movies I've talked about a lot is, is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And um, I love it for a lot of reasons. But I, I read the books. I, I love how C.S. Lewis rewrites the Christian story in this kind of fantasy land. But in the movies, there's this... Uh, the scene where Aslan the lion, and it's something I do every Easter as I rewatch those scenes. Aslan the lion is killed. Some of you have seen the movie. They don't just kill him, they shave him, they tie him down, and then they kill him. And at the last moment, it appears that he is completely at their mercy. Just like in the Bible. The people that go check on him a couple of days later are who? 
the girls, the women, right? Lucy and Susan. And they get there and they're in their grief and they turn around and what's happened? He's gone. And they look over and he's back in full glory. And there's that scene when he lets forth a roar that shakes the world literally. There have been descriptions of that play being done with children who don't know the ending. And when Aslan's character comes back, there is raucous applause. When I saw the movie in a theater, people cheered at that moment. It's because our hearts long for that story of Christ and it looks forward to the story of the church in the same way. Chapter 14 is the church triumphant. The sound of harpists playing on their harps. They were singing a new song. A couple of observations about the 144,000 here. Is, first of all, the 144,000 are on Mount Zion, but in verse 2, the voices come from where? They come from heaven. Hebrews chapter 12.22 describes Mount Zion as part of the heavenly Jerusalem. So it seems that the Mount Zion saw is the one that's described here in chapter in verse 1 is the one that Hebrews describes. Part of the new Jerusalem, the coming newness. Second, on this Mount Zion, uh, these 44,000 are like harpists making music before the Father on the throne. They redeemed her singing a heavenly song, new song just as we sing a new song in verse 9 of chapter 5. Finally, it's an exclusive song. Nobody but those sealed by the Father, redeemed by Jesus, can know the song. There will not be Hindus or Buddhists or Muslims who are following that path, singing this song. Nor will there be decent people who are consistent in their own atheism or people who are just good people but never name the name of Jesus. It's a song exclusively for the people of faith in Jesus. John also tells us four things about these singers. They are pure. They are followers of Jesus. They were redeemed and they tell the truth. The first three of these are seen in verse 4, the fourth in verse 5. The first thing John says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. Now, the point here is not that these people are never married, nor that they're all men. It's a figurative understanding. He had just described Satan's people in sexual immorality and adulterers. And so the contrast here is they are not people that gave in to that. The reference is of the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual immorality in verse 8. And that notice how Babylon made all the nations drink it. The redeemed refused to drink of it. They refused to partake of it. Babylon is the symbol of the world's powers that refuse to submit to God. So this first description of the 144,000 means they were pure in their devotion to God. They did not commit spiritual adultery. Secondly, The 144,000 are said to be those that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. The Lamb is Jesus. He leads through His Word. He has given clear commands. Following Jesus is the opposite of idolatry. We are to be people who follow Him completely. I'm in the process of planning the sermon series and praying about where we're going from Easter onward. And the name of the series that I'll be starting on Easter is Fan or Follower. Are you someone that just is a fan of Jesus or are you someone that follows Him? 
And the idea is there are a lot of people that like who Jesus is, but they're not following what He's called us to do. The third description of 144,000 is they tell us who they are. They have been redeemed from mankind and are the first fruits of God. They did not receive, redeem themselves. They did not secure their own salvation. God saved them through Jesus. It's a passive. They have been redeemed. If you can think you're going to stand before God and tell Him of all the great things you've done, and then He'll accept you for it, you're wrong. The 144,000 are those that have been bought by God. The fourth thing is that they are people who told no lies and are blameless. They tell the truth. The lagon, the, dra- the, lagon, the dragon lies about who made the world and what it's for. These people tell the truth. The dragon lies about the useless death and resurrection of the beast. These people tell the truth. The dragon uses a false prophet. Prophet, these people tell the truth. It means that the redeemed tell the truth about God, who the Messiah is, about how to be reconciled. Now the world will not say they are telling the truth. They will call them fools and liars. But they are telling the truth. Notice the connection in chapter 14.5 between blamelessness and truth telling. The Bible never presents blamelessness as something that results from perfect obedience. Blamelessness results from the gospel and the truth. So the first thing we see here is that we can trust in the Lord to take care of us. Here's the second thing. Those who reject God must hear the warning God gives. Look at the three angels. The first one proclaims the gospel. The second announces the world's party is over because Babylon has fallen. And the third describes the everlasting torment with no rest that God will bring on those who worship the beast and align themselves with the world against God. So the first is about the gospel. It says, I saw another angel flying above and that he proclaimed the eternal gospel. We live in a world that is constantly seeking new, different, unique. The gospel is eternal. It is not new, although it is unique. It is not just the next new thing. It is all that has ever really mattered. It is the ultimate story. It is always true from everlasting to everlasting. It may not be new news, but it is good news. Just think for a minute about how astonishing it is that this message is forever and good. This is not some old story. It is the eternal gospel. If you are one who knows and believes and is a part of the gospel plan, you know that truth is true from eternity past and will be true into eternity future. I was watching an interview the other night with Piers Morgan. You know who Piers Morgan is, CNN? And Piers Morgan was asking a question about a moral issue. And he said, well, don't you just think that it's time that we bring the Bible into the 21st century? And all I could think about was, it's already here. It's been here, and it will be here. If there are 28 centuries, it's still going to be true. It is eternally true. Alright? So, the message is not just for a small section of people either. It's not just for Jews, or for Americans, or for people growing up in the Bible Belt. It's for everyone. 
The angel says to proclaim it to those who dwell on the earth, to every tribe and nation and language and people. That means that there are no local truths. There is an eternal, universal truth. That means that the gospel is the everlasting good news for Americans, for atheists, for Muslims, for Buddhists, for Hindus, that the gospel is the everlasting news. That it applies to whomever. They don't have some other way to God. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. There's not some other religious message before or after the Bible that provides the way. The angel's message, the eternal gospel, is the only way. Look at verse 14, 7. What is part of that? Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of the water. It's a simple message. God's the Creator. God's made it all. So He deserves to be worshipped. He says these truths are as basic as gravity. Now, who in here can defy gravity? Anybody? You say maybe for a second. But gravity, even as you're jumping up, gravity is already pulling you down. Right? And so, the idea is that you can't defy gravity. No one in this room can levitate on command. Nobody here can fly. And I don't mean get in an airplane and go. I mean by yourself. Gravity is a rule. It is a law. Well, the gospel is more binding than gravity. It is what is eternally true. The second angel's message is interesting because he says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Remember a couple weeks ago a statement that I made that God is the only being who can speak about the future as if it's the past. What does it say? Does it say Babylon is going to fall? What does it say? It's already fallen. Now, here's the truth. The kingdom of Babylon is a symbol of the wicked world system. And it hasn't fallen yet. You can turn on TV tonight and see Babylon has not yet fallen. But the fall of Babylon is certain. The angel can speak of it as if it's already happened. The second angel's proclamation is a warning to those who have walked away to the Lord and saying to come in repentance. The idea is, hey, listen, worshiping the beast will keep Satan from persecuting you. Worshiping the beast may let you buy and sell goods now, but it will be a short while. Idolatry and identification with Satan may make your life better, but there is a terrible price to pay in the end. It is meant to encourage those of us who are followers of God and to call unbelievers to repentance. And here's the last thing. Verses 12 and 13 show us that there is a call to perseverance because of a reward that comes in the end. Satan's deceptions are powerful. His beast may be convincing and his false prophet may persuade every unbeliever in the world to worship the beast and kill Christians. It will be no fun to have the ancient dragon wage war on us. Revelation 13.10 indicates that some of us may be taken captive, others may be slain. Revelation 13.17 says that those who refuse the mark of the beast will not be able to buy or sell. We may suffer, and because of our faithfulness to Jesus, our families and our friends and our churches may suffer as well. But chapter 14 tells us that no matter how bad it may get for believers before Jesus comes, when He comes, He will reward those who have been faithful to Him and will punish his enemies. 
It will be worse for unbelievers when He comes than it was for believers while Satan attacked them. And for believers, the reward will be incalculable. It will be amazing. Blessed are the dead who die. They will rest from their labor and will be rewarded for what they've done. Chapter 14, the first part especially, comes at the end of some pretty discouraging stuff to say, no matter how bad it gets, don't ever give up. Keep moving forward. Keep on keeping on.